I've been wearing the same underwear since Tuesday. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Cray. My happy Friday, everybody. I'm Gary Manson. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and we are joined by bad boy Benny Mathers at the board through the miracle that is Zoom. We got a good shot of him over here. Looking good, Benny. Glad to be with you again. Thank you very much. I should be uh, high atop my crow's nest, but I came down specifically for you today because it's a very important show, and I'm super excited. Well, absolutely. And excited with good reason. We've been looking forward to the return of Hank Garrett. I hope he gets to be a recurring guest. I hope so, too. That would be a lot of fun. And here I thought you came down from the crow's nest because looking out at the Seahawks, there's no Seahawks left to be seen right now. What up, Benny? I knew you were going to bring that up for me. I don't want to talk about it. I had all week to get over it, but you just had to you know, ruffle up my feathers again, (laughs) did you? Well, I was born in the city of Baltimore, and I'm glad that the Ravens have advanced, yes. but I keep saying to myself, to keep this very brief, the road to the Super yes. Bowl in the AFC goes through Kansas City, and good luck to everyone who tries to scale that mountain. I know, and good luck to them. I'm actually rooting for them. I, that's what you could actually, there's a scenario in which you could have a rematch of the very first Super Bowl in case the Green Bay Packers meet the Kansas City Chiefs. We will just have to see. There you go. But for right now, we are delighted to welcome back Hank Garrett. I'm going to read his mad props, Suzanne, and then we're going to get into the kind of potpourri questioning. This is the sort of interview I love because, as we are often heard to say on this broadcast, it's all about the stories. And Hank Garrett is a story machine. It's just (laughs) incredible. He has a wonderful autobiography and so many stories to tell from a very storied life. Hank Garrett is an American actor, voice actor, and stand-up comic, most notable for portraying Officer Ed Nicholson in Car 54, Where Are You? Mr. Garrett has appeared in films such as the 1968 version of The Producers, Serpico, Death Wish, Three Days of the Condor, The Sentinel, Exorcist II, The Heretic, and the 1979 version of the Omnibill Horror. His television credentials include the 1979 series Paris with... James Earl Jones, Knott's Landing, HBO's First and Ten, Santa Barbara, and Max Headroom. He was the voice of Dial Tone in G.I. Joe, a real American hero. He is the author of From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. And he's going to come in punching. Hank Garrett, we're so delighted to have you back with us. Thank you so much. God, I'd love to meet that guy you were talking about. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You live an interesting life, I'll tell you that. Uh, and it's still going strong. <laughs> Thank you. As are you. I can see you on Zoom. You're a very healthy gentleman who is approaching, if you don't mind my saying, you're approaching status as an octogenarian, and you look like you get in the ring with the best of them today. Well, I got to straighten that out, if I may. Uh, I started wrestling when I was 16. Wow. Uh, I was still going to high school, and I was going to turn pro. But you have to be 21 or older to get your license. So they took care of my my birth certificate. Instead of being born 1931, uh, I, I was born in 41, but they listed me as 1931. So I could qualify for the license. Ah. 
So when I was wrestling pro, I was 17 years old. And That's incredible. As, as a newbie, you're known as a baby face. And I was the perennial baby face. Uh, same thing with Car 54. Uh, I, I became a cop using a, a phony license. And I was a cop for a short time. And I tried to make a difference as a police officer and realized I couldn't. And so uh, I, I had a friend of mine, uh, a fellow comedian, a guy named Mickey Deems. His wife was Nat Hyken's secretary. And Nat created the Bilko Show, the Martha Ray Show. And he was working on a show called Car 54, Where Are You? And they got me an audition. And I sat there. And Nat Hyken, this, this incredible genius, looked at me and said, you are Ed Nicholson. I said, no, I'm Hank Garrett. <laughs> he says, just the kind of dummy I'm looking for, you're going to play Ed Nicholson on Car 54. And left the police force. And here I was playing a cop on television. And suddenly I became one of the stars of the show. Oh, incredible, incredible story, your whole life story, Hank, but let's stick with Car 54, and there's so many other things to talk about here, but I'm a huge fan from my parochial school days of Car 54, where are you? Oh. How does it feel, and in this regard, I'm reminded, reminded a little bit of Pernell Roberts, what is it like, what does it feel like to be the last of your tribe in connection oh, with a famous God. TV series? It's frightening because of all the dear friends that I've had for in my life uh, are gone. And I just can't believe that uh, God has been so good to keep me around and we're helping other people. And that's what I do now. Uh, I've been doing, I go to where children are incarcerated and I talked to them and I said, uh, look, I was there where you're seated right now. I was there. I was always in trouble. And God sent me an angel named Sammy Davis Jr. He got me off the street. I was taken to him by a gentleman who was the mayor of Harlem. Uh, my mom, who is a fruit and vegetable peddler for Pushcart, uh, this mayor kept buying stuff for my mom. It was always wonderful, fresh fruits and vegetables. And she kept telling him I was in trouble. And did I know anyone that can talk to me to try to help me? I didn't know as a, as a kid, I didn't know who I was. Uh, at one point, I was standing with my mom at the Pushcart. And a woman came over to her and said, is that your little boy? And she said, oh, oh, no, 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 that's my grandson. I was born very late in life to her, and she, she was embarrassed. And another time, my father was at the door and talking to a census taker. And he said, how many in the family? And he said, well, there's a woman and her three kids, my two half-brothers. And he said, who are you? And he said, I'm an uncle visiting. My mom was my grandmother, and my father 
was my uncle. And I lived on the streets because they didn't have time for me. They were working 15, 16 hours a day just to make enough money to buy food. So I lived on the street. I slept in cardboard boxes as a young kid. And uh, I fought. I was angry. All my life I was angry. And so I kept fighting people. No, it didn't matter the size. I'd take them on. I'd get a hell of a beating, but it, I just didn't stop. Sammy Davis Jr., I was taken to him at the Apollo Theater. And when we approached the Apollo Theater, I saw the sign that said, starring Sammy Davis Jr. I was taken to his dressing room. And the mayor said, uh, this is the kid I was talking to you about. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he said, I understand you're a tough guy. I said, yeah, I'm tough. He said, tough guys wind up with broken bones and scars. You're beyond that. You're going to go to prison or you're going to die. And he was right. I had a 25 caliber pistol in my pocket. And it kept getting heavier and heavier as he was talking to me. Sammy got me a, a gig, a job with an African-American orchestra. I said, I, I don't, I'm not a musician, man. He said, no, no, you're going to be a band boy. You're going to put the music out for everybody else. <clears throat> Thank you. Excuse me a moment. And that's what I did. And the band leader, after the, sh the show, came up to me and he said, you did a great job, man. Wonderful. And he gave me $50. He said, hey, go buy, get some kicks, man. Get yourself some new kicks, shoes. Next day, I bought a pair of Florsheim shoes for $15 and gave my mother 35 He gave mm -hmm. me 50 bucks, And that's how it started for me, with the, being a band boy. <clears throat> then he got me a gig up in the Catskills. And I learned about comedy, watching Buddy Hackett and Red Buttons and guys of that ilk. And... 20 some odd years later, I'm appearing at the Sands opening for Tony Bennett. And wow. opening night, I step on stage and front table, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Peter Lawford, and Sammy Davis Jr. Frank gave me a standing ovation. And when Frank stood up, Everybody stood up. <laughs> I told Frank at one point, I said, you know, this is the second standing ovation I've gotten. He said, really? I said, yeah, what I had uh, before I went on, I had all the seats removed. So, well, Sammy came up to me and said, uh, you're a funny cat. But where do I know you from, man? You look so familiar. 
And I said, I'm the kid that you said was going to go to prison or die. And he said, it's you. I said, yeah. We hugged and we cried. And he was my angel. He was the, the angel that God had sent me. And I tell kids that I speak to that are in trouble. I said, there's an angel waiting out there for you, for every one of you. But you got to be ready. You got to be ready to listen with your ears and your heart. So I have been giving back. I've raised funds for the disabled American veterans. I've done that from day one. I travel around the country uh, doing autograph shows. And the proceeds go to the disabled vets. And now I'm doing the same with my book. I got a book out and uh, it's been very exciting. And it's called From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. All the, all the things that happened in my life are in this book. And now and they're talking- Very multifaceted life too. Oh, thank you so much. Now the, uh, the rumor is uh, this book is going to be a movie. Oh, wow. I hope so. Thank you. Who, who would play the young you, Hank? No, there's a challenge for some kid <laughs> I was going to ask the same question. I'm a little busy, but I could try. <laughs> go, to any, there you go. go to any prison, you'll find <laughs> Well, you won't find me there then, unfortunately. <laughs> Oh, that's, it's an amazing life you have led. There are countless stories. And a lot of them uh, there uh, in your book go on for a while, which I want because you need the detail. You need to get the soul of the story. And then there are many funny anecdotes. Oh, it's one of them. I'd, li I'd like to stick with your childhood here for a second, Hank. Uh, the first time you were on, I wanted to ask you, and then we got into Car 54 and other subjects. So I thought <laughs> I'd save it for round two. And round two and you just need to understand, Hank, that you're talking to a couple of talk show hosts who very frequently uh, hobnob and delve into subjects with our metaphysical friends. So for us to talk about anything paranormal is not intimidating. It's endlessly intriguing. And I yes. wanted to ask you about an incident. And if I recall from reading your book that you had befriended a gypsy family. There in your neighborhood. Oh. Okay. And was his name John? John's grandpa. Uh, I, John's grandpa. The story about John's grandpa and oh, yeah. the incredible experience you had, the likes of which I would love to have, but I never have had. I can tell you about other experiences that I've had uh, along those lines. Uh, the story was uh, I was one of the bigger kids in school. Uh, myself and a guy named Gilbert Montana. Gilbert was fighting pro boxing at just turned 16. He's another one that they had to change his uh, birth date. But we were the two biggest guys and one of the classes I was in, a teacher said to me, Hank, uh, can you come here? And she said, can you take this kid John home? He doesn't feel well. He lives on the same block. He lives probably across the street from me. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, do you want, when do you want me to do it? After school, she said, no, no, he's quite ill. 
Uh, he's thrown up a couple of times. So if you could ju just escort him home. There was no nurse in the school. So I did. We walked home. And he lived in a brownstone. Uh, and we walked in. And then the woman, I guess his mom, came over and, you know, she said, what's wrong? And I told her he wasn't feeling well. So she put her arms around him. And an older gentleman walked by me and he walked up the stairs and he stopped and glared at me. And I said to John, I said, who is that? He says, oh, that's my grandfather. I said, why is he so angry at me? Well, you didn't say hello. And I said, oh, hey man, I'm sorry. He said, well, it's okay because he died a couple of weeks ago. I said, what? He said, he died a couple of weeks. I said, well, who is that? And he said, it's his ghost, but it's okay. You know, he's not going to harm you. I said, ghost? Oh, yeah. Okay. Hey, ghost, how you doing, baby? <laughs> and he would just turned around and walked into his his room. So I, now this is kind of such same situation that happened to me when I was a young boy. I said to my father, there was a woman at a window. I was, I was fast asleep. I said, I dreamed about a woman at the window and she was looking at me and smiling. And he said, what did she look like? And I described her. And my father said, that's my sister, Sally. She died years ago. And I've had some really strange experiences in my life. And uh, some people said, uh, well, you've been given a, some, some kind of power. And I sense things at different times. That, that I think that's, that's known as being an empath. That's the, and it is a gift. It's something that, that you can use or not use. But I was told by a very wise lady who was one of the most amazing psychic readers. For accuracy, she would be Ted Williams. It was incredible what this lady could do. I've lost touch with her. I think she's about 85 and living in Las Vegas. Uh, Connie is what she went by. That was her trade name, her stage name, Connie. And, and she said, when you have this kind of ability the, in the psychic dimension, these powers or these gifts will press upon you. And if you don't use them, many times they don't go away. They just press harder because they wish to be a part of your consciousness. That is so interesting. Uh, when... I lost my son, my older boy, in a motorcycle accident. And I have conversations with him. Now, I keep saying to myself, it's just what I'm creating in my head. And someone said to me, no, you were given certain powers, certain strengths, uh, and the conversations you're having with your son 
are real. He's gone. His spirit lives on. And you were given, I guess, the advantage of hearing him and talking to him. And you're very blessed. And I feel I am. And I get certain vibes from different people or situations. And I still think, well, uh, it's my imagination. And I'm okay with that. It's when they wrap me in a jacket <laughs> with the sleeves attached in the back, then I know I've gone way beyond my imagination. <laughs> Yes, not likely to happen with you. And, and they'd have to get around you first, I'm telling you, there, because you learned how to, to fight. You were quite the bodybuilder while you were still a teenager. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I started pumping iron uh, when I was about 11 or 12. I studied martial arts, uh, Taekwondo Hapkido, when I was 11. Uh, a gentleman came to the through the area. And he was teaching kids, hoping that he could get the parents interested in joining his dojo, his gym. And so I started training with him. And when I first went in, I only wanted to train so I could be a better street fighter. I had my nose broken for the first time when I was nine by a member of a gang. And so later on, I had the opportunity to train with this gentleman named Min Pai, who was from Korea. And when I approached him at the dojo, I told him what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a better street fighter. And he said, then you go somewhere else. He said, I don't teach people to fight on the street. And I came back the second time and shortly I learned respect and humility and along with the martial arts and now i'm considered a grand master in martial arts i'm in the karate hall of fame and it's a, it's just been amazing for me what a family of the other martial arts are and uh, I'm, I'm truly truly blessed and I thank you're blessed God. And you're a blessing. I mean, yes, we should all thank God for blessings like you've had in any measure. But there are also, you know, I think, Hank, that you need to take a bow because there, there are so many times you would know far better than me, times when on an ordinary day in your neighborhood as a kid, you could have lost your life. In fact, you saw oh. that happen to one of your buddies who was shot to death in front of you, feet yes. away from you. Yeah, we were walking home from school. Uh we, we lived on 111th between Park and Lexington. And it was just a group of us. And one, one of the kids fell, tripped and fell. And we were laughing at how clumsy he was. And when we looked down, we saw blood pouring out of his head. Somebody had shot, fired a shot into our, the crowd of kids from a, a rooftop. So it could have been any of us. And boy, I've one of the things I, I'd seen so many times was violence and death as a kid. And it became 
just happenstance. It's okay. Was it me? So go on with your life. And it was, it was like that. In fact, at one time, uh, I told my mother about saying something happened. And I saw at one point, a bunch of kids and I, neighbors, we started a, a pigeon. We started raising pigeons on the roof. We built a coop. And a lot of the pigeons were being attacked by some hawks. So one of the guys came home and he got his father's 22 caliber rifle to shoot the hawks. Well, two kids were arguing about who was going to do the shooting of the rifle. And they were tugging back and forth and there was a bang. And one of the kids lost his life. We dismantled the coop, gave the pigeons away. And went home. A couple of weeks later, I just went up to the roof just to look to see where we were, where the coop was. And I saw the kid that was shot. And he was standing on the edge of the roof. And we used a bamboo pole and a little flag to wave the birds in. And there he was, the guy that was shot. His name was Marino, Marino Sola. And I came, I closed my eyes and he was gone. And I saw the pole hit the roof. And I came home and I told my, my mom and dad. And my mother said to my father, I don't know if it was in Russian or, they were, they were both from Russia. And she said, I found out later what she said. She said, he's seen too much. And they put me to bed. And I think I spoke about it once or twice. And it was, as we say, it was such a common situation. And it stayed with me for a long time. Then I got involved in other situations in my lifetime. So it passed, the thought passed. But thanks to Deanna Marie, who was incredible, she wrote the book. All she did was sit and question me. What happened next? And what did you do next? And she brought all those things back to life. And it's all in the book now. But the experiences of being on the streets of Harlem were incredible. They're incredible now. They were normal then. You know, Hank, you're talking about that violence that you witnessed so close up, which is not everybody's experience. Oh, I know. And, you know, a lot of people have not gone through what you've gone through in this particular year. Um, I feel like I've seen too much between uh, all the stories and all the deaths regarding the pandemic, 
regarding the the protests that we had earlier and the riots we just had at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like I've seen too much. And since you grew up with that from an early age, how does everything that's been going on in 2020 affect you when you're watching it? It scares me, truly. I'm old enough to understand how fragile life is. Having seen so much, I thought it was all behind me. And seeing the violence on television, it brings back all those horrifying moments. They weren't horrifying at the time because it happened all around me. But it's hard as I got older, I realized how precious life is. In seeing that rioting, I was part of a riot. Well, I wasn't part, I, I got caught up in it in Harlem on 125th Street. So I witnessed that, that kind of craziness and watching people getting caught up in the excitement, and then they become part of it. Yeah, I understand that. And it scares the hell out of me. Yeah, me too. And from not having had that experience as a child, you know, it was, you said the perfect words, you know, your mother said he's seen too much at an early age when you have death and ghosts that are with you, it is, um, it, it, it becomes part of your DNA as you're growing older. And to me, it's just, it's, it's shocking to the point where sometimes I just have to turn away from it. I can't watch it anymore mm-hmm. when I've seen uh, all these stories about lives that have been cut short in the pandemic. People yes. of every age, not just oldsters, but young people and children and, you know, every age uh, happening so quickly. And, you know, you saw it quickly in the gun violence. And, you know, I'm seeing it happen quickly where people don't, they don't have time to even say goodbye to their relatives. Oh, and they're absolutely. just gone. And so I, I feel that same kind of shock and trauma going on right now. And, you know, my, my hope for this coming year is that enough people get vaccinated where we can at least get past that trauma, but we seem to have multiple ones this year. And so everybody had a a little bit of a taste of what it is that you grew up with. It's, uh, you know, you, as you go through life and you're thinking, well, it's going to be so much easier now. Uh, and it's not, it really isn't. I recently lost a very dear friend, uh, Warren Berlinger, wonderful actor, just just one of the nicest people in the world. He was my closest friend. And suddenly he wasn't there. He became ill and he was gone. And it it's not easy to deal with. 
I'm in touch with his, his family. He lived with his daughter and her family. So he had, he had a sizable family to look out for him. But as a close buddy, I was so used to getting up every morning and calling him, say, hey, Warren, how you doing? How you feeling? And that's gone. It's not just my personal loss. The world has lost another incredibly talented young man. So I, I'm realizing that more and more as you get older, you realize how fragile you are. Uh, when I was wrestling, or I, as, I also competed as a power lifter. And you think nothing can hurt you. Well, I was in a terrible automobile accident coming back from the Catskills. And I wound up spending 13 and a half months uh, hospital and rehabilitation. And I realized that. Am I not as strong as I thought I was? Or would I not be here because I'm so strong? So th these are the questions that <laughs> keep popping into my head. At present, I am so lucky, so grateful for Deanna Marie Smith being in my life. And I realized, what would life be if I didn't have her? Because she's my everything. And I never wanted to re rely or depend on anybody for anything. You know, but I think a lot of people feel that way, Hank. Uh, our country and our culture has really celebrated people who are uh, independent and can do a lot for themselves. And, and, I, and I also agree with what you said about your perspective changing as you get older. Our, our listenership is a, a baby boomer crowd. So, you know, most of the people born in that 46 to 64 era and, um, you know, I myself felt like I could do anything all the time. Yes. And, and Gary and I were just moving a couch about three years ago and I fell and fractured my back. So Ooh. then I was I was on in in bed on my back for a long time, letting that heal up. And like you, I, I said to myself, boy, you know, I thought I could do anything you know, move furniture and oh and yeah, do landscaping and paint and do all kinds of things and that I would never get hurt. And that was probably the first time that I was injured so seriously. And, and then you begin to say, wow, you know, I could have, I could have done something more permanent. I could have paralyzed myself. Exactly. But when the medics came, they wanted to make sure I wasn't paralyzed and they were testing my reflexes and things like that. And I'm going, Oh my God, I could have been paralyzed moving a couch. Mm. And, and so that fragility of life, I do think begins to 
um, come into more into people's consciousness as they get a little older. And for that reason, we need to be more careful about everything, about, you know, how we're, how we're moving, the things that we're doing, what we're exposing ourselves to during the pandemic, all that needs to be taken into consideration. Otherwise, this life's going to be over with. Yes. Oh, <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> and we need oh. to keep moving there it, because of the, all the things that happened to you, Hank, and that Suzanne just described. I remember that day all too clearly. She woke up. It started making breakfast almost immediately afterward. By lunchtime, she was on morphine. <laughs> oh, that was a day. It was, it was just incredible. And yes, when we age, the pace slows. So what if when we're walking, it looks like Lawrence Welk's dance floor? It's okay. <laughs> 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 the point is to keep moving. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's hard to hit a moving target. That's for that is for darn sure. I did want to ask you now that we've discussed these these horrid incidents that have their lessons contained within them. I wanted to ask you, Hank, because I was last night reading the the chapter about that terrible accident you were in that caused a fatality, and you wondered if you were even going to be discovered in your position being thrown from the car. What an extraordinary moment that was! And then you spent thirteen and a half months in a hospital. A lot of things happened to you in that time, of course, and not all of them physical in your rehabilitation. But what I'm curious to know, Hank, is do you feel looking back on it like you were given, well, you could pass on this anytime, I'm sure, but do you feel like you were given an opportunity to get to know yourself much better? Oh, God, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, all the things that I let eat away at me came to the fore. And I had spoken to a gentleman, an older gentleman at the hospital. And he said, if you spend so much of your time being angry or upset, you spend most of your life in waste. He said, you solve nothing. The anger that you have is just going to eat away at you. The people that you might feel anger toward don't even know that you're so upset at them. And I don't suggest that you confront them and let them know, but just think about it. You're wasting so much of your life and energy being angry at someone who doesn't even know that you're angry at them. And God came into my life. Uh, he healed me. Uh, he sent me, I had a cousin who was no longer around and he was a nutritionist. He came to visit me in the hospital. I was in a body cast. And he brought me a box of supplements. I mean, a huge box of everything you can possibly imagine. A doctor stepped in, saw the box and said, what is this? 
and he's my cousin said they're food supplements and he said are you a doctor to my cousin he said no, i'm a phd he said but you're not an md you can't prescribe medication he said it's not medication they're food supplements they confiscated the box my cousin showed up the next day looked like a couch that was the size of the box he brought in and it was candy he said you give the candy to the nurses underneath the candy all the supplements labeled and i want you to take everything well i was able to walk out of the hospital after a few more months I gave all the chocolates to the nurses who started gaining weight because they kept visiting me and helping themselves with the chocolates. And when I was able to walk out, everybody was patting themselves on the back. Oh, the miracle? We're the miracle because we worked on him. And I saw all these nurses who had put on weight and had zits all over their faces. <laughs> and they were saying, thank you, Hank, so being, oh, God, what a patient. He was so generous. I said, oh, oh well, help yourself. That was my motto, help yourself. And I was engaged to be married at that time. And the young lady that I was engaged to never came to see me in the hospital. She sent her mother to return the engagement ring to me. When I left, I left the hospital. And shortly thereafter, I did call 54, where are you? And a limo picked me up each morning and took me to the studio. Well, I got out of the limo for the first time and there was a mob and they were fans of the show. So now I'm signing autographs before going into the studio. And there she is, the lady that I was engaged to. And she just stood there with her mouth wide open. And I looked at her and said, oh, would you care for an autograph? And I walked into the studio and I said, thank you, dear Lord. That kind of revenge is so sweet. Oh, yeah. I like that story. I like that. And knowing a few people as I have over the years, this didn't happen to me personally, but I'll tell you, Hank, you were lucky to get the ring back at all. Because I, <laughs> I, know, I know of at least one woman who philosophizes, and this was a bit of a discussion we had many years ago. She feels that that's a gift. The engagement ring is a gift. So if the engagement is broken, oh. the ring isn't broken. It was a gift. When, that, uh, when this lady's mother returned that ring to you, you were still making payments on it. Yes, I, I was. <laughs> I had to borrow money to make the payments while I was in a body cast. Oh my goodness. What yeah. an experience like that. I've known people who've had extended stays in hospital, but nothing quite like that. 
that is that is just stunning to me that the you were not driving there the no. gentleman who was lost his life quite suddenly and violently what was your relationship with his family didn't you get some some well-meaning advice looking at your financial condition where somebody said you should sue them yes a guy came over to me it was a, an attorney and said, whose car was that? I said, it was my friend's car. And I would chip in for the gas. And that's how we got to the Catskills. If you didn't have transportation. Somebody on one of the shows would provide the transportation and you would pay chipping for the gas and tolls. And this person absolutely, I approached me and said, you know, you don't, you didn't own the car. You were just a, a, a passenger. You could sue the family. And I said, can you move a little closer or you can't hear me? No, 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 no. When I throw this punch, I don't want to hurt my shoulder. So moving <laughs> closer, please. Wow. Yeah. So it was <laughs> quite an interesting he lost his life and and they want to soothe. Oh my God. And your attitude was, haven't they suffered enough? You're cut from that sort of cloth, not the type to take advantage. And you know, I'm reminded of something else from your book, Hank, and that is among police, and you've been in these worlds, among police, among the wrestling fraternity, certainly in martial arts, you put a great deal of stock in a code of honor that is shared among people who form a brotherhood. Yes. Uh, the martial artists, uh, it's a family. Uh, one of my closest friends is the six-time world champ, Benny the Jet Arquitas, six-time kickboxing champ. I trained with Benny. Uh, and he's, it was amazing amazing experience uh i met him i was introduced to him and he said to me how come to my dojo and we'll play now benny's about five foot five five foot four and 140 pounds at the time i was 511 weighed 220 225 so i thought to myself I don't play, little man. But I was, okay, I'll go play with you. And now I, we were pitter-patting, just blocking and moving. And, uh, and I said, I'm getting tired of this. I'm going to throw a roundhouse, which is a high kick to the head, take him out, and then I'll go home. Well, <laughs> he went straight up in the air. He saw me prepare to throw the, the, the kick. He went straight up in the air and kicked me on the top of my head. <laughs> and I went, oh, oh, boy. Hey, listen, Benny, I've got to get going. I've got a pot roast in the oven, and I don't want it to burn. And I kind of tried to walk home after getting that shot. Oh, and we became fast friends. See, that's why I you don't mess with a Benny there, Hank. And, and Gary and Suzanne know that, too. They don't mess with me. <laughs> that's right. All right. You had to move 3,000 miles away to get away from this yeah, guy. Yeah, you stay over there. <laughs> <laughs>
listen, I was wrestling Killer Kowalski, nicest guy in the world. He was a monster. He's uh, six foot four, six foot five, 275, 80 pounds. He meets me at the airport, takes me to breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I can't even leave a tip. Wow, nice guy. I'm wrestling him that evening. Now I step forward out of my corner. I want to shake hands and he slapped me right across the face. And I thought my head was going to pop off. I said, oh, that's the way you want to play? I'll play your game. He grabbed my arm and he whipped me. I hit the ropes and I hit him with a forearm smash right across the chest. And I was looking down as I threw it and I looked at his feet and they didn't move. I just hit him with a shot that would have knocked the, the shoes off a full grown horse. And he just looked at me <laughs> and he said, Hank, is that your best shot? <laughs> After the match, we're in the locker room and I just said, uh, oh, good, good match. And so he said to me, Hank, do you know what you kept yelling every time you ran past me? I said, I ran past you? Yes, and you kept yelling, Ma! Ma! <laughs> <laughs> oh. And I, in, the, in the wrestling, yes, yeah, finish, please. I have some, another big name I want to bring up. Oh, sure. But I had a fan club, and the fan club were some little old ladies who were in their 80s and 90s and they kept bringing me food. They showed up at every match that I was in. And the other wrestlers loved the fact that they had a, all this feast and they kept saying to me, is your fan club coming in again, Hank? <laughs> oh, I was wrestling a guy, forgive me, I forgot his name. And he body slammed me. And he was going to do what they call dropping an elbow. He goes up in the air and he comes down elbow first into my chest or my head. Well, as he threw me, he went up in the air and I heard bang. And he stopped and grabbed the back of his head. One of my fans, she must have been 110 years old got in the ring and hit him with a Coca-Cola bottle. Oh my. And he just stood there holding the back of his head and said, I'm not gonna hit her, but I'm gonna kill you. I said, me, I didn't hit you, she did. So I had to escort her out of the ring, help her down the stairs. And he said, get back in here. I said, well, I, and she said, no. It's too damn dangerous. And we left together. <laughs> so, oh, those so are so many kind of, of these stories. And there's a, a glorious name from the history of wrestling from south of the border that I need to mention. And oh. Hank, you had the opportunity to work with the magnificent Mil Mascaras, yes. who I maintain to this day, <clears throat> popularity in one's home country were the sole oh. criterion he could have been president of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. I 
when I worked with Mill, uh, never got to see his face. And there was a, a wrestling convention a uh, number of years later. And another guy, another wrestler was sitting there talking to this gentleman, wonderful tan mustache. And uh, my friend said to me, Hank, have you ever met Mill? Now I thought he said, Mel. I said, no, no. And he looked at me, the gentleman, and said, you were very good. And I said, Mil? Mil Mascaracion. He wasn't wearing the mask at the time. And I went, oh my God. I wrestled a legend and lived to talk about it. And meeting him in person and that evening, of course, there was a big dinner and he was oh, a white tuxedo and the mask. Mil Mascaras, the legend. Which is oh. Spanish for a thousand masks. Yes. He had many of them he wore. Oh, absolutely. This one was white silk to match his, his tuxedo. Wow. What a wonderful experience that would have been. And I can recall being in high school and watching. It was like, it seems to me it was either Wednesday or Thursday night, but we had wrestling on in the LA market. And I can remember the blow by blow account being given by a former actor turned wrestling announcer named Dick Lane. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> he, he, would, he would provide the action saying things, and he gives him karate to the ear. <laughs> he used to ask to nobody in particular. I'd go, what does this have to do with wrestling? <laughs> and somebody's being hit with a folding chair, and miraculously, the referees never seem to notice. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but that became popular entertainment there for for young people and old alike, my grandmother, my goodness, there in Pittsburgh, my old Polish grandmother, my dad's mom, she was a huge fan of Bruno Sammartino. Oh. Worship the guy. So there's so many of these stories to tell, and we're in our last minute here, Hank, but this is why I say you are a story machine and what a storied life you have lived. Please say you'll come back for a round three because once again, <laughs> we, we've only scratched the surface. We haven't talked about any of your movies. We do oh. need to have a movie, a movie time with you. Next time. Next time movies. So Absolutely. tell us you'll come back again. Uh, call Harlan and set it up. I'll be more than happy to come back. Harlan uh, Bull being one of the best Hollywood publicists of all time. And we've gotten friendly with each other. He brings us great people like Hank Garrett and many others, including God rest her soul, the late great Don, Don Wells, Wells there. Right. And uh, we love working with him. So she we will was... give him a call. She Wasn't was so she lovely. still lovely and always keeping it real? Yes. Thank and, you uh, so so much but, for being uh, with us today. We got to scoot because there's another show coming up. Always time well we, spent in your company. We will Hank, look forward so to the next time for sure. Thank you. Just and the book can be had at, at Amazon, and as I said, the proceeds go to disabled American veterans. And now I'm involved in a thing called Hanksters Kids trying to get the kids off the street. Give God bless you for that. Hey, Garrett, his book is From Harlem Hoodlum to Hollywood Heavyweight. We have got to go. Have a beautiful and safe weekend, everyone. Okay. Here
iridescent socks with the same color shirt. And 